0: On the 35th edition of the Twin Geek Cast, we return from our July 4th hiatus to look at Stranger Things. We turn the box office upside down for Midsummer, and join us in the lobby for a feature presentation of Jaws. The Twin Geek Cast theme is provided by andrewnapiermusic.com. Anime experts back this week. I want to talk about Neon Genesis Evangelion.
1: No, we said we're not doing it this week. We said we're opening different. Let's talk about Stranger Things
0: instead. Let's talk about that TV show. Not quite an anime, but it does have a lot of childhood joy in it. Mm -hmm.
1: I think there's definitely a a super nostalgic element to it. This is like one of the big Netflix series to first kind of blow up and make it a, a huge deal for Netflix. And, you know, it seems like it's still going strong.
0: Um, yeah, I feel like that was the one of the foundational things with like House of Cards and Orange is the New Black is like, oh, that's just going to be a prestige service eventually.
1: Yeah, I think that was definitely the case. You know, Stranger Things was the biggest thing on everyone's mind when it first came out. It was a huge sensation and we all kind of bought into it. And we've been I think we were, we were waiting around to see what they do next. And now we're back again with the third season, which everyone seems to be really high on.
0: Yeah, um, I've only just started it, so I'm three in now, and I'm really enjoying it. It takes you back to, uh, I don't want to be so cliched about how I approach it, but it's nice to go back to like malls that are actually functioning as social places.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I totally get that. I mean... I guess I get that. I didn't have one growing up. The closest mall to me when I was growing up was this really shitty place like 45 minutes away. <laughs> and like all of the places were slowly closing in it. It just basically was like a movie theater at some point. And then the last yeah. I heard, there was a shooting there from some kid from my town that I grew up in. That, sounds right, <laughs> like the,
0: that sounds right to me. That's That's what all the malls are now, shootings and <laughs> you don't want to hang out yeah it sounds like you got that last moment where the where the mall was dying and that was your childhood was you got the end of it
1: yeah i still got like some mall nostalgia from going there but there was never anything exciting at that mall i don't know like it depends on what kind of mall setup you got as well you know it totally depends on the stores inside Uh, there was a time
0: in history though so i'm told
1: that malls were like the thing
0: they were the gathering place and stranger things kind of captures that as like a wraparound location where, you know, some of the characters are working. That's where they go to their movies. It's where you go shopping. You know, when I was a kid, it's like the, the video games at the arcade were so, so far better than what you could get at home. So if you wanted a good version of a video game, you had to go to the mall.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. I see that uh, in the series, everyone's kind of growing up more now. We're not dealing with, kids you know like we were in the first season two and now they're yeah. like full-blown teenagers with like jobs and everything and i think that's an interesting thing i mean it, they, they kind of have to adjust like that because they can't keep the kids young
0: yeah it feels like this season is more of a coming of age story in a way that the others weren't able to be because they were adolescent and they were very interested in like a child psychology and now we get the um more of the preteen psychology and uh moving into a different phase of life and how adults are struggling with their growing kids. It's there's a lot of adult themes in this too. Um the horror's very elevated. Billy has some great parts around the pool and he's drawn into like a really uh really heavy string of terror that I'm really getting into.
1: That's nice. I guess it's like a kind of evolution from where we started with these kind of Goonies esque setups. Now yeah. we're more gremlins. I think gremlins is probably a better equivalent with the kind of teenage going on and parent, you know relationships
0: yeah um and i was delighted when they went to the movie theater and we had that little grindhouse music that we did for our podcast intro that one time
1: right the one i picked out there for uh, that was the yojimbo podcast
0: yeah um listen to that one as well great podcast with graham um this week we're covering uh jaws so i thought it would be nice to bring strange things in they take place on the same week just uh you know maybe what is it like 10 15 years apart
1: Right, 4th uh, of July is what we're doing. That's the thing. As yeah. I, I settled in to watch Jaws. I mean, we, we, actually, we both watched Jaws yesterday for our 4th of July celebration. So it seems to be the most fitting film, you know. As you do, right? But, and... We'll come around to that one, I guess. But, you know, Stranger Things is also eccentric around 4th of July this time. The summer vibe kind of going on here.
0: Yeah, it's funny because both of them have this, like, impending doom as the countdown to 4th of July begins because they're, you know, mentioning, oh, You have to close the beach or you have to close them all it's kind of like there's some overlap there that you could see in like the 80s horror story 70s horror story
1: right so uh calvin what was your feeling on the series uh kind of up until this point
0: um a lot like bros i think i really appreciated the first season the second one didn't do as much for me but i'm i'm a huge fan of the music incorporated in the series i went to like a laser show last year with the all the strange things music so i really enjoy that aspect
1: that's cool that very kind of carpenter esque you know 80s synth music a little bit of what we got with our you know new halloween film last year as well
0: yeah bring the synth back i think it's ageless and it shouldn't be stuck in the 80s Mm -hmm.
1: we're kind of stuck i'm interested to see how strange things kind of evolve because we're going through our 90s nostalgia phase right now in our culture so i wonder if they're gonna end up Moving that way more if they're going to stick to the 80s for the foreseeable future. I don't know how much more time this series has. You know, that's the kind of thing I'm wondering.
0: I think, what's it? Uh, it's, I think it's at, uh, don't quote me, but 1985 ish now. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it, it has a little bit longer to explore. Uh, there's a lot of late 80s stuff that you could really get into. They're especially playing into Russian stuff now, which is like, you know, beginning a Cold War and a lot of, well, you know, like late Cold War. There's some feelings about going into that in the show.
1: Mm hmm. I guess that's all the, the interesting going there. But yeah, I agree in general that the first season really was kind of the huge boom of the show where things went off. I wasn't a huge fan of that finale, but the second season, yeah. I, think, I think I enjoyed it a bit more than you did, especially some of the new characters. I was I was very sad when they got rid of some of them. Like Sean Astin's character, I was I was devastated when they killed him.
0: <laughs> oh man, yeah. There's a, there were a lot of twists in it, and I think there's... I, I have weird feelings about last season that it's in this weird... Creepy best in stage, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Between
0: being a kid and when you're, you know, finally getting the freedoms of adulthood, it it was in those awkward growing stages for me.
1: Well, there's definitely some weird things. Like I can't even remember a lot of what happened in in season two necessarily. I do remember there was some odd stuff going on with like Eleven's character arc, that like she was non-existent for the majority of the series, except for that one really bad episode that just entirely derailed the whole season.
0: It's weird because she's back with hair now, and it, it feels like she's a person, you know, not defined just by a haircut now.
1: Yeah, well, that's a, a good thing, I think, to have for her character, evolution from, you know, beyond what she kind of just was. But no, I, I I enjoyed the second season, I think, more than most people. But there was a large enough gap in between the second and third season that my interest kind of dropped off. But uh, it, it sounds like everyone's back on board, so I'm going to be checking it out soon.
0: Yeah, I think I think if it weren't for the second season, this was just the fall. People would be over the moon right now. But I think there's a little bit of caution going in. That kind of carries over. That's once you've already done something, it's it's kind of hard to keep going.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so I do have to ask as well, Calvin. Kind of in the nature of these particular kind of shows, it doesn't sound like you're just binging it all in one sitting. Is that not how you approach this?
0: I I don't really binge shows that often unless they're a uh, uh, high you know, anime. Um, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I like watching things in, like, two, three episode blocks, like a movie. Right. I, I could, like, every episode's an hour long in this. So it would have taken my entire day yesterday.
1: Well, that's what we did with uh, season two when that came out. We just cleared the whole day and sat down and watched the Ugh. entire season in one go, which was fun. I think is is kind of a fun thing. And that's a, a special thing about this new kind of, uh you know, platform here. We got streaming, you know... Kind of uh, indicates a direction that, you know, shows are going in more for this more binge thing, like you're supposed to sit down, clear a whole day and just watch this whole thing. And it's nice to have the option to much better than I think the alternative with
0: television. It was definitely my plan, but this got a lot darker than I expected. Faster, I didn't, I couldn't watch it with my daughter so much. So. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't really able to like control the TV for long enough to get like the full binge in, but that's what I wanted to do. Right,
1: right. Well, again, it seems like that's the way things are going, and you know, Netflix is putting out a lot of that. Hopefully, they kind of pick up more of those things and can capitalize on that because they're going to have to rely even more on their um, you know unique and you know specially made shows because they're losing all of their older properties now the things they've been renting out
0: yeah and netflix they're they're really masterful about how they can get you in front of the tv for the longest stretch of time at, at any given time they can hold your day captive almost they're they have the data to like back up the right way to do that and the you know, like the emotional psychology that you need to do to get someone to stay with something that long.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, we should have a review from uh, Bro for the series coming out here uh, pretty soon. And so take a look, yeah. at, you know, look forward to that when that comes along for the season and, you know, see if his opinions changed a neat bit since his Doctor franchise injury on it. All right. Uh, so, Calvin, you want to take a look at
0: our box office here now this week? Absolutely. I was born to look at box office.
1: Yeah. So so this week's a, a little different because we got to be kind of a little bit early this week. Uh you know, we skipped last week because of 4th of July stuff. We're all kind of busy, but now we're we're recording a little ahead of time. It's right after 4th of July now. Uh so we're we're kind of predicting what the box office is going to be here. We have a prediction kind of pulled so, up. So
0: <laughs> basically we're making everything up. The numbers don't matter, the points are made up.
1: Mhm. box office is it anyway? <laughs>
0: All right, <laughs> uh, Disney's. Yeah.
1: Well, starting here, we got uh, Lionsgate. You know, they're still making good. N- you know, number 10 here is John Wick, Chapter 3, potentially yeah. holding
0: on still. <laughs> um, I watched John Wick 2 uh, the last week.
1: You watched it again? Yeah.
0: Uh, I didn't watch it when I was going through the, the uh, 1 and 3. Uh, I just skipped over it so yeah. I could get to the theater.
1: Oh, okay. I see. What did you think of it, revisiting it? Um,
0: I... For me, it's still a growing series. One to three, it just escalates for me into the thing that I always wanted to be at three. So I, I like two more than one and three more than two.
1: Hmm. I, I think that's interesting still because you know, I'm totally on the, the opposite end. So it's just an interesting kind of dynamic. I guess it all just depends on what you want out of the series.
0: Absolutely. And I think that it's different for a modern franchise, which do not escalate very well. Um, I feel like there's, there's very few franchises in general that get better with with age and that uh where they where they come into their own as they grow so that's been fun for me.
1: Mhm. So many of my problems might be just that I'm not a fan of how the series evolved necessarily, but I th- I still think that there are some genuine like structural and you know story problems with the third film.
0: I could see it and I think I'm willing to overlook it as I'm placing a lot of the story being the action and I'm kind of making a different read on what what the story is, I guess.
1: Right, that makes total sense. Again, I'm not dogging anyone for liking 3. I enjoyed watching it if I was not a little befuddled stumbling out of the theater. <laughs> Alright, uh number 9 here, we have uh, Avengers Endgame coming back since Disney re-released yeah. it with quote-unquote extra footage. <laughs>
0: Is it is it extra?
1: I don't I don't think it is. It's incomplete scenes from what I've read, <laughs> like like
0: just a little bit. That's uh, I mean that's cynical. I don't remember when Avatar re released though. If it was actually anything extra,
1: yeah. Like if that's the thing is that if at this point they do end up passing Avatar, it it won't feel like a genuine thing. I mean I don't think they even will at this point. This is just a kind of desperate attempt
0: to get past it no this is a last ditch effort and it feels like the uh, domestic numbers don't suggest it but we haven't seen i mean it's not even going to get re-released in china so what are the odds not very good
1: yeah well that's odd i mean that seems like the one place place you would want to
0: do it again no, they didn't let them so <laughs> i don't know what's going on <laughs> mm-hmm. they didn't think it was valuable enough i guess so uh, i agree yeah well i don't think it's going to this point and i
1: think by next week it's going to drop out of the box office again and
0: i am I, I do want to say I'm surprised, though. My holdover with the uh, Avengers films specifically is usually pretty bad, and Marvel in general. I cool off pretty quickly, and I still have the same strong feelings about this being pretty good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was a good conclusion, I thought. Yeah, yeah I, felt, I felt satisfied with all of it, and I love where it's pointing for, um, you know, even characters that might be gone, like, uh, you know, Black Widow and... Uh, we'll see you later in the box office.
1: Yeah. Uh, here at number eight, we have Men in Black International, which I'm surprised has held on for so long.
0: <laughs> and I don't, uh, I don't know why they made this movie.
1: Uh, I, I guess they had a contractual obligation or something. They had a, uh, already poured money into getting the script written or something. I don't know.
0: <laughs> it sounded so cool doing the uh, Jump Street Men in Black crossover. Like, that could have been something fun.
1: Even then, that was kind of like a too little too late they should have done that right off the back of 22 jump street like there was no way they were going to get that you know together here and i don't from the sounds of it it doesn't sound like it was the same kind of film like certainly they didn't have the kind of self-aware winking at the audience kind of element that the jump street films did
0: there's like four kinds of scripts inside this movie there's four different movies that could have been buried in it and i could see the one that's jump street but uh, rather than being a parody of like the '60s sci-fi that Men in Black is, it's like a more of a secret agent parody, and that way it's more Jump Street.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I I didn't have any interest in seeing it. The Men in Black franchise is not a stable or good one.
0: No, uh, it has one good movie, one okay movie, one epic movie, and then this bad movie. Yeah.
1: So I don't. I ain't got any more to say about it. <clears throat> no. At number seven, we have a uh, Secret Life of Pets two.
0: Which we've covered enough. I'm not very interested in it.
1: Yeah, I'm fine at leaving it to that. It'll probably still be here next week though. Uh, probably s- same with this next one. We got our first or I guess second Disney one back on here. Aladdin. Mm. <laughs>
0: um so they've they've shown the new uh well they showed the new uh what would you call it, Princess for a little mermaid. How yeah, do you the feel about that? New
1: character design cho or uh, act. I think it was just selection; like they didn't even do a design thing of it, right?
0: Yeah, they they just announced the actor, and uh, I forget her name, but she sounds like Halle Berry. That's all I know. Right,
1: that was the name, and everyone was really confused. I remember reading; I had to read over it a couple times because I'm like, "Oh, she's
0: way too old for that part." But everyone's like, I- "I'm ready to eat the racist tears," and then all the response was like, "Is it Halle Berry?"
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm trying to find it here. Halle Berry, Halle Bailey, Bailey, Bailey. That's, okay. that's the difference there. And you've got like, oh, that's weird as well. They have Melissa McCarthy as Ursula. Yeah,
0: they're they're working on that. I think I don't know if that one's been confirmed yet. Okay, it's listed on
1: IMDb's cast, but that's oh, never okay. that's never accurate. You know, who knows? But I do yeah. know that Rob Marshall's directing it, and he has a musical track record. I
0: guess I'll say, <laughs> um, and. Uh, I mean, this actress she she comes from musical background, I guess, and that's all. Uh, that's all that character is. She doesn't have any depth or anything. So. Yeah, there's a lot, lot of being underwater.
1: There's a lot of controversy surrounding the casting of a a black woman as Ariel, you know, who is has it, it infamously <laughs> red, giant red hair. And so, the, yeah. like, I saw some outcry from, like, the, the ginger crowd who were like, ah, we want our <laughs> representation. It's just, it's a really silly thing to kind of fight over. And if anything, my thought is, you know, I would rather have a, you know, radical departure in casting like this than just remake the film shot for shot, Beauty and the Beast style.
0: I mean, it's already such a different movie from the Hans Christian Andersen movie, and I guess my hope for it was it would be Denmarkian more than the... Uh, what what would you say, Little Mermaid's more of, like, a Caribbean tale? And that's not that interesting to me.
1: It kind of is. I mean, it's, it's Caribbean in, like, some of the characters with, like, Sebastian. But I wouldn't call the story itself Caribbean. I don't know. Like, I think the big thing we need to address here as well is that this is not, like, the, the original Little Mermaid is, is not as great as everyone remembers it is. It's it's really kind no. of straightforward and plain and very poor characterizations. <laughs>
0: It's it's a musical more than it's any kind of interesting narrative. There's there's really not any meat to it compared to the story, which I really like because it's dark. It's based in Denmark. The girl gets her tongue cut out. I think that's fucked up and cool. Yeah. And the and the uh, Ursula in that book is like a based on like cross dressing guys. So, you know, the, you're not going to get accurate casting based on that so don't worry about it so much
1: well that's the thing is that they based the original ursula design like supposedly uh off of you know famous drag queen divine and so Mm -hmm. that's that's like the best element of the original mermaid though is that it has a really good villain like everyone else in it is kind of lame including ariel who has (laughs) no agency as a character and has to be you know rescued from her stupid mistakes by lame prince eric who does nothing (laughs)
0: I mean, the whole story is like her getting passed from her dad to her to her new husband. It's pretty pathetic.
1: Yeah, it's it's just not all that great, and I don't know. I don't want to rag on it too much here because I feel well, yeah, we cause... your reviews alone have invoked the wrath of Disney <laughs> fans the world over.
0: <laughs> also, we're talking about Aladdin, and that's also not good.
1: Yes, I mean this new one anyway.
0: Yeah, uh, the original's fine.
1: Yeah. Anyway, uh, number five here, we have predicted uh, Midsummer to, to take the place.
0: I think you're saying it nearly right now. Am Midsommar, I? Midsommar. I, th- I? I, think I don't think close. it's summer.
1: I don't think it's Midsummer. Midsummer is the time of its release. Midsummer is the name.
0: Yeah. Midsummer. We're close. Um, Get Jesse here coached, to us. My wife coached me for a week, and I still don't know how to say it.
1: Yeah, I don't know. We're, that, that's a kind of key facet of the podcast here is just us mispronouncing
0: everything. <laughs> uh, sometimes intentional, other times just ignorant.
1: <laughs> I don't. I, I don't have much a read on this film personally because I didn't kind of keep up with a lot of new stuff. I know Ari Aster, very big kind of guy. Everyone loved him after Hereditary last year, and they've been super looking forward to this film.
0: Yeah, I, I hear it's. I hear it's funny. It's dark and. I don't want to take my wife to it because it's about really messed up relationships. And I don't feel like that makes a good date movie.
1: Mm-hmm. I got the read. Everyone's kind of giving me the same vibes that they were during High Life earlier this year, where it's kind of like, "Oh man, this is a f- fucked up kind of film."
0: <laughs> and I, I think that's why I'm kind of interested. And in, uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm looking into like their, you know, religious rites and what it means, what death means, and what cults. Around practices of death. That, that stuff interests me a lot, so I'll go.
1: Yeah, kind of, you know, piggybacking off of our discussion of the Wicker Man last time we were together.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, listen listened to that last week. That's a good podcast. Um, I'm sure I'll have thoughts on it next week, and Laura should have a review up the next two weeks.
1: Yep, yeah, that will be exciting to kind of look forward to and hear about. Mm-hmm. Number four, we have a more horror film here Annabelle Comes Home, another one of those I don't conjuring know. films. <laughs>
0: I've been watching a lot of Child's Play lately, which I have a lot more relation to than Annabelle myself. I know Kevin loves Annabelle.
1: Mm -hmm. Was he going to go see this? I don't know if he has yet. He gets out to the movies only slightly more than I do.
0: Yeah, I mean, he has a lot of talk about going to the movies, but I think he has about the same level of action and commitment as you do. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) um i think i think annabelle though he really loves which i i understand why it's cool and why I, I think it i think it's cool new generations have their own horror stories so i'm happy with like conjuring universe stuff that's neat mm-hmm.
1: i did watch i guess like my only connection to it was yesterday uh i posted in our little chat there that there was a video from the director of uh the annabelle creation film he also mm-hmm. did you know shazam that director um to kind of talking about his own films. I flipped through his YouTube channel a little bit there. That was some kind of fun stuff, some uh, filmmaker insight into how they operate and how the business kind of works. And I think that was some cool stuff. Did you get a chance to look at that video?
0: No, I'd like to look into it though later. Yeah, I I definitely. check it out.
1: Definitely do. I think it was interesting. He kind of talks about how some things you could perceive as like, you know, logical mistakes or continuity errors or whatever were things that had to be kind of covered up because of productions not being able to align and just how different are. Like like how our studio system here is so money driven and time, you know, demanding it demands things to, you know, be done like kind of shortcutty kind of ways. Yeah, I think that would be a good thing to check out. Uh, number four here projected we have yesterday to hang on to the box office pretty strong.
0: Yeah, I I went and saw it and it's it's very average. Do oh, you like the Beatles? Uh, who doesn't like the Beatles? Losers, losers who don't like the Beatles. <laughs> It's cool because the guy gets in a traumatic accident and then he wakes up and somehow he's the only guy that remembers the Beatles, can, uh, supposedly.
1: So so can you can you explain to me? I'm curious. Is there like any explanation as to how this happened? Like a, or, or do they kind of just groundhog day,
0: wave it away? Like, no, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's slightly in wave, but the, the electricity all over the world goes out right away. And then suddenly this guy wakes up in the hospital. He's like a... Oh, let me play you a song, and he plays a little Beatles song. Nobody had heard it, and he realizes now he could take his music career even further by playing the songs of the Beatles. But of course, he only remembers the, the most basic songs, right? Like the really catchy, poppy stuff. So you know, uh, you get the you get the basic hits of the Beatles, and none of the undercuts that you that you're probably looking for.
1: Right. Well, I mean, the Beatles uh, a lot. Yeah, of course, they're more most popular music. Some of their early stuff is all very kind of basic musically it was you know but there's beatles so much more than that i think there was an interesting i think i talked with you basically a little bit about it and basically like there's so many things about the beatles that maybe the film will take into account like how their influence in film and television had and style and culture like the 60s were giant turning point for american and you know english culture like just western culture in general and then you know the beatles were like a centerpiece
0: of that there's a moment where he can't remember Elmer Rigby's. Like I've got to go to Liverpool, and they're all like, "Why would you ever go to Liverpool?" It reminds you that like a band like that, like Nirvana or Beatles, could completely revitalize the town and give it a little bit of a soul that it would have never had. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what he,
1: is there a way he would find the the music talent or Rigby in the town? Uh, like it's not like I lying think, around, right?
0: No, I think I think he wanted to go for inspiration, and I think he's looking for that. The Beatles don't necessarily not exist. I think a those people exist within the role because Ringo and Paul eventually uh, come out onto a stage, or at least it's implied, and then you get a little shot of uh, maybe maybe these people exist but didn't make music.
1: So, so they didn't actually get Ringo and Paul.
0: No, um, I don't know. I I might have walked out for a moment, but oh, <laughs> I, I f- may have missed whatever that cameo is to take a call. But
1: it uh, doesn't help. No, I would expect um, that since they're still around, but whatever.
0: Yeah, I know it. I know it plays at them at least being there, and that uh, at least one of them may be there. So.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't know. I uh, I had like some interest in this film when I first saw a trailer for it, but like the trailer also gave me like cringe moments because the humor just seemed way like bad. There's like and you got Ed Sheeran mm-hmm. in the film doing stupid things. He has,
0: he has a big part. It's not just a cameo. Oh no, <laughs> he's in the film. No, no, I don't like that at all. Yeah, I mean, like like you see in the trailer, he tries to revise, like, Hey Jude, there's Hey Dude for the modern time as that kind of hammy stuff. It's an
1: awful, stupid joke <laughs> that doesn't make any sense.
0: It also has a little bit of Bohemian rhapsodiness where it's like, a, give me a sound that sounds like your guitar is gently weeping. I'm like, oh my god.
1: Yeah, I don't, but there's other things like that, like, hey, hey Jude wouldn't make sense in a modern context, because Paul wrote that right. song for, you know, John Lennon's son. So like, who, yeah. who's Jude then in the context of the, them not existing anymore? I guess the other question is, is John Lennon still alive? <laughs>
0: i don't know if we can get that far with it i wish it, i wish it took a lot more liberties with where it was going
1: i guess yeah there i, I have a lot of questions i guess about how the world works without the beatles and existing and, I, and it sounds like the film doesn't exactly answer many of those questions
0: I, I don't think it's interested in answering any of those questions and it doesn't go anywhere at the end with what this concept really means to the world i think it just shows us that the world's worse without the beatles and i think i agree
1: yeah, so. I, I think I, I, everyone would agree to that. But
0: I think uh, so. I've come up with the my idea for the worst band that that you could possibly erase from history. What's that? Um, I've got Velvet Underground.
1: Velvet Underground. Do you think it would be worse than erasing the Beatles?
0: I think so. I think that would that would account for most of my musical taste being erased. Oh,
1: it might make your world worse, but I don't think it'd the it would make my world worse. I think I think the Beatles is basically the, the kind of highest point you could go there. They're like the most influential musicians of the 20th mm.
0: century. Well, I like Velvet Underground as a choice because, well, of course it erases like all the local music history, right? There's no alternative rock. There's yeah. no 90s. Uh... I'm
1: I'm not saying it wouldn't be devastating. I'm just saying, like, comparatively to the Beatles... It's a bit of a difference. <laughs> That's
0: my, uh, opinion, my opinion. Well, I'm not from England. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs>
1: anyway, here. Uh, at number two, we have uh, Toy Story 4. It's probably going to hang on forever. Yeah,
0: uh, Toy Story 4 is really good. It's surprising that it's good.
1: Yeah, you had a whole review you did
0: on it, right? Yeah, uh, you could go check that out on the site. It's uh, I, I like Toy Story.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you did do it. It seems like it's a nice wrap up for the series one we weren't expecting or asking for but one that was handled very carefully
0: it's a very pleasant surprise but i also have a lot of anxiety about them doing more because it's such an anxious creation already and i don't want them to make a bad toy story
1: right well that's kind of how we felt after three and then we heard they're doing four and it's like ah, that just seems like such an awful idea but they did it but also at the same time it seems like pixar is moving away from doing sequels which is a
0: very smart move i think I think Onward being their next title probably says something about the direction they <laughs> yeah. need to go.
1: That's a it's a good point there. Uh, I don't know how that film is going to pan out necessarily, but you know we'll see. Hopefully they keep making new stuff. I'm just tired of the same old same in general, and hopefully in in total as an industry, we'll move away from sequels and reboots and all that crap.
0: I think we're seeing this summer looking at like this box office, uh, uh, sequels and franchises aren't doing what they used to. I mean... I think Toy Story 4 is doing about exactly the same as Toy Story 3, but you should be, um, the market's so much huger now that you should be doing, you know, incremental, not not just incrementally better, but significantly.
1: Mm-hmm. No, it's hard to say, because stuff like, you know, Avengers and, you know, the Disney blockbusters and everything, it's basically, if it's a Disney property, it's doing well, but even stuff like, you know, we saw John Wick had a really good run this you know these past couple of weeks, so sequels are certainly not out yet.
0: I mean, we can't even say. That. Well, yeah, like Disney development. But then we have like X Men, and we have Toy Story, and we have a lot of Disney that's not even making, you know, what 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 it thought it would.
1: Well, I don't know. I think Disney just kind of sucked up the, you know, receipts there for X Men. Like they were they, they didn't put any investment into the yeah. actual production. But who knows? I mean, this. No, but I think one. I, I
0: but... think it's interesting when they have to feel the burn of their own, <laughs> their own dominance in the box office.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean they don't seem to be complaining too much with their number 1 here,
0: you know, the no. new
1: Spider-Man sequel.
0: Yeah. And it, it's it's frustrating cuz it's like Endgame was the last like huge success and then people are like Spider-Man saves the money. It's like for Disney. Mhm.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm not running out of the the home to go see this at the box office right now at the theater.
0: Yeah. Uh I don't I don't know if I want to. <laughs>
1: I, th- I think part of that is certainly kind of like, you know, Avengers hangover kind of feels like where just I'm not motivating more, even though I really like Spider-Man and I'm really interested to see Jake Gyllenhaal's Hall's Mysterio, but I'm just like, I mean, I can't justify I, going out to spend more money on this movie that I'm not like a hundred percent interested in.
0: I'm still in my Spider-Man refractory period. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: And we just had our review from Tyler come in and, He's pretty done with the series, too, it sounds like. That that review Uh, was pretty (laughs) scathing about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the review suggests a lot more than about the movie, more his place, his frame of mind about where he is with the MCU, which makes sense. He's done a lot of content for us, and I think he's real tired. I think the more we ask him to do, he's like, okay, but uh, I'm, I'm real exhausted.
1: Right, I, I mean, who could blame him, but it sounds like he's pretty done. He'll have that uh, piece about Phase 3, and then that's it. that will close the book on the MCU for him for yeah. some time, if not forever.
0: I'm sure they won't have any exciting movies after this one. So. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I he'll be good for at least a year, and then I think they're going to do something, and he'll be like, oh, I have to begr- begrudgingly go, then I think it will actually be good, and he'll be back in. I think uh, those are my bets.
1: Yeah, I imagine that what they got, like Black Widow lined up next, I think that's probably going to do actually poorer than people expect. And then Black Panther 2 will probably be a huge sensation again. And then yeah. that'll probably kickstart everything going, you know.
0: I think that'll lead the next phase, something between Black Panther and Guardians of the Galaxy 3.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, those two I think are going to pull people back in potentially because they really fell in love with those characters and those franchises and that's gonna keep interest going those are the only two ones i think here that are really going to keep things i think floating. it's less
0: less exhausting for me because i feel like i just started with marvel the last two years <laughs> so, Right. i mean i've watched them all now but i i don't i don't feel like i'm exhausted at all
1: yeah well i mean I how much else to say i'm pretty tired of these big blockbusters you know we we're kind of more nostalgic this this week for kind of old blockbusters the og blockbusters if you will Mm-hmm. And so that's why we're kind of looking back at our one of our sight favorites here. I think it's easy to say that Jaws is like a, a renowned film amongst all of us here.
0: There is a creature alive today
1: who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him
0: Jaws. (laughs) So, my... My main takeaway last night was my daughter was running around in circles and she was screaming, "Shark is coming! Shark is coming!" <laughs> da <laughs>
1: That's funny that she hooked onto that. I think it's interesting that you'd let her watch this movie because it gets really brutal at sometimes.
0: <laughs> there are points where the shark's pretty bloodied, but what I what I really realized about Jaws is how universally and easily appealing it is. She could. She Could really latch on to this idea, like uh, you know, every time she's in the bath, I do like the shark sound, right? So she's used to it,
1: right? Well, it's a, so such an ingrained thing into our popular culture, it's impossible <laughs> to avoid. I'm pretty sure, yeah, like, I realize, I m- remember, right at the, the Academy Awards that year, they they and from like then on, they would start using the Jaws theme to usher people off stage when they were going <laughs> on for
0: too long. It's it's brilliant, it's brilliant sound because. Well, I take her little plastic doll and I like twist its legs back and make it look like a grotesque, and then I make the sound <laughs> in the water and kind of freak her out and go ah, and then she's you know that's like her relation. So once she heard the music, she's like shark. She already knew, but that's in the without right. any of the movie, which is great.
1: I think that's kind of how we all go into Jaws, but you know, like knowing that ahead of time doesn't ruin what the movie is. I think the movie is uh, extremely strong, masterful because it's uh, got this perfect blend of adventure and like character drama
0: going on. Uh, you were talking about like some of your context of it that you could really feel the movie.
1: Yeah, so so this is something I've said about it for a long time is that uh, what really works for Jaws for me is especially in that second half, the, the authenticity of being out on the actual water. You know, filming this on the real ocean that Spielberg went and did. They could have done what every Hollywood movie did up until this point, which is just film it in a tank, you know, at the studio set. But they actually (laughs) went out in the ocean and it makes a monumental difference. And I connect with it so vividly because. I spent a lot of my childhood growing up on the water. I would go out regularly with my dad on fishing trips or pulling up crab pots, so that feel of the ocean air and watching the wake behind the boat go, like, seeing that on screen, it gives it that level of authenticity. I feel really there, like it feels, you know, real.
0: And we're both in Washington State now, and we're both pretty you know near the water, so we have that kind of surrounding area. For me, that's, you know... How Jaws looks is how I feel when I'm down by the water anyway.
1: Right. Well, I think that's another important element, especially in the early half as well, is that they do a really good job of building the town of Amity and making it feel like a real place, like you get the sense of the locale with it. And if you've ever been to a small town, you kind of understand how they operate. And this idea that the summer is this kind of urgent, big, you know, time for the town because that's where they make all their kind of yearly profits from. And you see how the businesses thrive off of the tourism.
0: Right, it's like the um, like the mayor urging everyone back in the water. You can't lose out on your tourism dollars.
1: Right, and that's kind of the whole thing of the film. There in the book, that's even kind of an even bigger element. Have you read the book before, Calvin?
0: I haven't. I kind of like to after this.
1: Okay, it's it's interesting, and I think the book is like a versus the film. You look at it, it's an exercise in like how to perfectly take this kind of mundane material and make it like like really realize its full potential because they cut out everything in the book that is nonsensical and kind of poorly done and just kept, oh, really? like it was like, yeah. So like there are things like part of the motivation for the mayor to keep things open is because the, the mob is shaking him down. Like there's a whole a mob element to it in the, in the book, which is really weird. And then weird. like the worst thing, Oh my God, you know, you thought King was bad. So this is a whole chapter dedicated to, uh, you know, Brody's wife's, like, sexual frustration with their marriage and sleeping oh. with Hooper instead and having an affair. I mean,
0: it makes sense to me that Jaws would be, like, a symbol of some kind of sexual frustration or something. They would be, like, the old man in the sea or, like, the Moby Dick or something, but I, I, I think that doesn't need to be there in the movie.
1: The shark isn't even a big factor for, like... Fifty percent of the book like it's all of this small town drama stuff and then it's like oh yeah there's a shark we got to go take care of and that's kind of like the last you know six or seven chapters
0: and i think more in the movie right because it starts with the shark essentially but people are always surprised that like half the movie is on land anyway
1: yeah and it, but you know the shark feels always like a threat and they do a really good yeah. job in the pacing of the film inserting moments like you've got the initial attack in the beginning the the attack uh you know after the or, or right before the 4th of july there where they have everyone on the beach and the Kintner kid gets eaten and then another attack after um, that at the lagoon
0: they do a good job because you don't really need you know the shark's very unconvincing in this when you actually see him but they do the best work with the shark when you can't see anything like a, all you need is a point of view and that music and you buy in anyway
1: Right. Well, and that is one thing. I think I I disagree with the massive majority of people who think the shark isn't convincing. I totally I think buy he looks into terrible. I see, and that's thing is I I totally disagree. I buy into the shark, the size and everything there. Like the fact that it has this unnatural lumbering, you know, mechanic to it. Like I think that makes it feel even more terrifying to me because it moves in this unreal
0: kind of way. Yeah, it looks more alien than actual shark.
1: Right, which I think kind of fits because it's obviously not a normal shark with its you know, consciousness and, you know, ability to <laughs> fight back. And it's, it's, it's a smart shark, you know, but, but no, totally the, the tiger shark. Yeah. The, 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 the total idea with it is that, you know, Jaws was a disaster in making and they took that and turned it into a masterpiece by you, you know, instead of using more of the shark, they used ways to make things, you know, resi- like, take on the personality of the shark they use things to you know represent the shark one of the things i noticed in this time watching back was that there's the scene where the two drunkards are going out and trying to catch the the shark with the roast early in the film you know Mm -hmm. and you know once the shark like rips the dock off it's just this terrifying thing with the music blaring as the dock is moving back in to get them and you know it's like the dock is the shark but it's just it's a they managed to take this floating piece of wood and make it terrifying (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean the the actual reality of what they're shooting is very calm, and it's it's not a lot actually going on until you add the music, and I think that's the brilliance of the music in it is that it allows you to buy into something larger. Like the sharks, always represented by like rafts or the dog, or eventually just like three buoys.
1: Yeah, the barrels, which I think uh, you know, the watching barrels. this time, I was really fascinated as well by because you gotta think about the troubles of shooting that as well like they're dragging these barrels around but you don't see what's dragging the barrels and especially in some of the wider shots you're like how do they pull off that shot with something pulling these barrels without anything kind of seeing around and it's impressive again because it's not like they have the full utilization of a tank where they can you know make things work however they want they're on the
0: fucking ocean and i I also like it because it's like a marker of where the shark is, but you don't get exact location. Like you have a vague representation of where he is in the water. It could be one of like a few places. And then when it dips or something, you you don't know where he's going to come up exactly.
1: Right. It's, it's a kind of technical feat there. Because again, famously, the shark, uh, you know, totally didn't work. If you get a chance as well, a book I'd recommend even more than the actual Jaws book is The Jaws Log, which is the writer Carl uh, Gottlieb's kind of account of, how the making of the film went, especially in like the writing process and the disaster of production, you know, where they had to kind of, um, you know, invent things to make it all work.
0: I I also think that it's also a thing that you could only do once. I think there's no point in ever making a sequel to Jaws.
1: Well, that didn't stop them. <laughs>
0: no, <laughs> and none of them worked out. I mean, there's nothing appealing about revisiting it. I think I think it's I think it's contained here.
1: Mm-hmm. I think uh, the only people find enjoyment in the third one the 3d one because it's just so bad there's also oh, very yeah. different with the sea world angle i guess
0: it gets aggressively bad by the third
1: <laughs> it's, uh, like just looking up the effects it's legitimately hilarious
0: there's yeah i mean there's there's a lot of ironic value once you get into these horror sequels that that's most of why you're watching it i think
1: mm-hmm. but yeah i think uh i guess going back we've touched on it quite a bit here but i do want to go even kind of more in depth with the music of the film because one thing i kind of took away even more especially this time like not only the iconic theme of it but the the rest of the music it recalls to me a lot Mm -hmm. of kind of bernard herman-esque style because the film clearly has a huge hitchcock influence throughout
0: yeah you could hear a lot of herman in it and it does sound exactly like a hitchcock movie and i think he understands what hitchcock did about implementing that
1: yeah, because well, you get the same like the you know, the theme of the shark kinda goes in tandem with the, the psycho strings and whatnot. You get that tense yeah. feeling with them, even though they're kind of diametrically opposite. But, you know, I mean, the they're... actual score as well is just very harmony with a big full orchestral kind of sound.
0: It reminds yeah. me a ton of birds, which is technically unaccomplished, but just like Jaws, it doesn't have to show them to ever get the thing and when it does, you know, that's not the thing you're there for. It's the music and the and the feeling of the piece that pulls you in. I think it has so much in common with birds.
1: I think it's kind of ironic because the birds famously has no score. It's all just sound, so
0: Yeah. And I feel like that's kinda of what I think he goes into like what makes birds so appealing though.
1: Uh, yeah, I guess it's like a kind of creature feature kind of thing here. That's the the kind of magnificence of Jaws as well. It's the same In the same way that Hitchcock took this kind of B-movie premise, so does Spielberg here and inflates it into this huge, you know, kind of uh, artistic angle. Like this is blockbuster filmmaking at its most artistic. I talked as well, like I, I kind of jotted my notes in a letterbox review, and I said not only is there a kind of Hitchcock influence, but a very kind of John Ford influence with the kind of reservation of, you know, shots and making sure to move, you know, kind of the right ways and the editing is
0: very all succinct. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's able to find, I guess what I meant about birds is like it's able to find like the silences and the moments where, where music doesn't matter whether or not as incidental music, it, it has a tone to the sound.
1: Yeah. So there was one scene as well. I want to ask you kind of about your new perspective uh, as a father figure. Now uh, that scene between Brody and his his son at the table, do you think you have any particular connection with that now?
0: Um, I, I mean, I, I know what. Hey, I think you have to view everything a lot differently. That how protective Brody is, and that, uh, what what he ends up feeling for his son—that he's essentially doing this because another kid's been eaten. I guess I feel more for like the grieving mother, and I understand more his motivation for even going out there than I would have before.
1: Hmm. I get that. I, I bring up that scene in particular because that's another kind of important personal scene to me. I remember one time watching this film with my dad, and he kind of turned to me and kind of connected with me when watching that scene in the moment and he recited the lines from memory, which is is a very nice, sweet
0: moment that I I always kind of remember. Is that kind of like your first experience of the film was like with your dad that way?
1: No, I mean, that wasn't my first experience. This is long after, you know, I'd seen the film lots of times. First experience, my fiance kind of showed me this film and we got into it and we involved and loved this together. This is one of our collective favorite films to watch. One of our kind of chicken soup films, we like to call them.
0: Um, I guess I watched it when I was very young, uh because I had just painted my room into like a nautical scene and it had like a lot of like sharks and whales and stuff. So we threw on Jaws for the first time to go with it, and I, I woke up in like cold sweats surrounded by like water around my walls. <laughs> I was having like the worst nightmares at, like, I think I was like six, but Right.
1: Well I mean that would do it certainly.
0: Uh, that's always a fond memory of it because then I had that, you know, for like the rest of my childhood, I was surrounded by like that nautical theme. And then, you know, when you connect your environment to a movie, the movie becomes really special in a part of your life in a physical way.
1: Yeah. I don't know. It's uh, interesting. Everyone seems to have some kind of personal anecdote about Jaws in some way. It's just a universal film <laughs> that connects with lots of people.
0: And it's funny because it's like, have you been to the water? <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> then
1: people... I think what uh, really works with it is that it's, The film is so character focused. So you connect with this trio of people in a way that, you know, you don't with a lot of other modern films, especially they really Mm -hmm. uh, capitalize on that and their relationships between other. So especially in the end, in the last half of the film, where it's just Brody, Hooper and Quint on the boat, it's just like uh, it doesn't matter how long that goes on. You just want to spend an eternity on this, you know, boat with them.
0: I mean, having Schneider Sean Dreyfus together is kind of like a dream team. Anyway, putting them on a small boat is cinema magic.
1: I absolutely agree. They they've got like this great character dynamic between all of them, and Schneider and um, you know Dreyfus. They have a really great rapport, in bouncing back one another. But especially, I love Richard Dreyfus in this movie. I don't know if he, you you have a particular. <laughs> Connection. Yeah, I
0: mean, I, I think I'd take Cooper as well. He's just such a special character. And, pretty, you know, when I think about Jaws and what is really fun about it, I think he's the fun thing.
1: Oh, he totally is. They give him, like, all of these best comedic moments. And his rivalry <laughs> with Quint is especially hilarious as they butt heads constantly.
0: <laughs> Even when they're in, like, pretty mortal danger, they're still having, like, a play out of at their rivalry. And I think that's a lot of fun.
1: Mm-hmm. There's lots of done moments, like, like when... Uh, hooper does like the face at him or whatever they're they're mocking him and, and uh, i just imagine the parts where he's up at the um you know like like hooper uh, quints ordering him around at the top to you know turn to the you know starboard hooper and he's like yes sir jimbo <laughs> and he's making <laughs> treasure island references
0: they <laughs> I mean, yeah, have they have a special thing going and um, i i don't know i think it's funny like 70s 80s how like the significant relationships are all like just men together and it's always mm.
1: interesting. It's really fun, but that is another aspect. I mean, to talk about Quint here, who's, who's so fantastic as a character and so over the top. And Robert Shaw just gives him this magnificent performance. It's it's uh, stunning, I think, especially early, his famous kind of intro where he scratches the chalkboard.
0: <laughs> I mean, that gets a reaction no matter what you're doing. I mean, I looked at my wife and she's like, oh, you know, I just like that it draws your attention to it. Mm-hmm. Some aspect of the character right there.
1: Do you know about the alternate intro they, they wanted to do about it with Quint's character? What was that? So So originally the plan was that Spielberg wanted to do is that he wanted to uh, have Quint introduce himself by like being in a movie theater where they were showing uh john houston's moby dick with gregory peck and he would okay. be laughing at the screen very bombastically at the poor special effects of the whale <laughs> kind of like if you imagine well, robert de niro in cape fear you know that scene yeah but they couldn't yeah, get the it. they couldn't get the rights to it because uh mm. gregory peck like would refuse to relinquish it you know because he owned part of the film and he just hated his performance in it and it's like no i don't want anyone to see it
0: that's a shame because it could have been used in an interesting way. But the the nails on the chalkboard is such an interesting character, and sure, they don't really care.
1: I think it makes more sense, especially because we have the whole town meeting at that moment there. Like, I'm trying to imagine how they could get characters into the movie theater and the plot and make sense. Like, this just seems like an yeah. all around better solution. And then uh, another piece of trivia I had about. Uh... Quint is that originally Universal really wanted to push to get Sterling Hayden is in the role of him especially since he was okay. known for his kind of seafaring you know expertise and all that but Hayden wasn't able to because of uh, tax issues, tax evasion issues and all that which is ironic kind of because Robert Shaw had to flee the film afterwards uh, from the set because he ha- also was having tax issues to avoid
0: <laughs> the The taxes are the real shark That's...
1: Mm-hmm. But no, I think uh, Robert Shaw is absolutely wonderful in here. I I can't believe how great he is in this role. Just kind of perfectly embodying this, you know, kind of seaworthy captain and just solely a guy who lives and breathes the ocean and fishing and all that. And especially, I mean, everyone knows about the most uh, harrowing sequence in the film, which is that speech that he gives about the USS Indianapolis.
0: Mm. And do you think, I mean, you you feel like it's aged
1: pretty well. I think it's aged wonderfully as wonderfully as a film can it's I don't even think it necessarily is stuck in its own 70s time period you know it feels very timeless
0: yeah um I I've always appreciated the film it came at just the right place right time just as you know obviously as the others were getting like air conditioning and it became the summer movie for like a huge combination of reasons right
1: Right, well it feels like that very much. So I guess that's the other thing for it is that as a horror film it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense as a horror film since a lot of it takes place during yeah. the day and it's very adventurous like especially when you hear the kind of uh you know wonderful John Williams scores there, you know, careening across the water there. It's very like bubbly and lighthearted adventure score. It doesn't feel like a horror film in those moments and it it kind of isn't. It bounces back and forth between elements of
0: horror and adventure. I think it's an adventure that understands, like, horror elements and is very literate in Hitchcock, especially.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's it. It's it's a horror film primarily with, like, uh, or, sorry, I meant an adventure film adventure. primarily, with a horror film kind of tacked on to it. I,
0: it's enough that my daughter could watch it. There were only a few times she had to turn away because they don't really show anything that damning other than blood in the water.
1: Well, there's, like, the blood and the, the severed leg that kind of sinks to the bottom of the ocean at one point. The the head of Ben Gardner, you know, at the boat there. Like, a lot of
0: creepy yeah, moments. Nothing, but... nothing that a child can't see. You know? Yeah,
1: I guess except for, like, maybe the exploding shark carcass at the end it might be a little <laughs> intense.
0: Uh, she definitely had to step away, like, the fi- last five minutes and watch some fireworks. Because it, it just ratchets up the tension until she couldn't really, you know, deal with it.
1: It, well, it gets especially scary. Like, I, I think maybe watching Quint die a horrible, agonizing death might be traumatizing.
0: I know. I had to send her away before it got, you know, before it gets there. Um, May- I think that it, uh, it well, the whole the, the movie's fun and games while the shark's still coming, but then once it's here, she doesn't want to deal with that reality.
1: Yeah, I don't know. This is probably, like, one of the. It's still very Spielbergy, and that your kids can get into it, do it, no problem. But you know, it's definitely more of the edgier kind of Spielberg, where like you're 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 risking a little bit if you show too early, but no worse than say something like um, you know Jurassic Park. I think is kind of similar in that same vein, where there's lots of
0: horror elements in Jurassic Park, but never quite as gory as here. I think they're pretty well analogous. Yeah, I, I, what yeah. works between those two movies, and I think they're about the same level of horror. Right, well, they're, you know,
1: big-scale monster movies with focus on characterization and, you know, kind of world-building, I think, and, like, they're, they're very good parallels to each other, but I do think that Jaws kind of gets it right better the first time, even though Jurassic Park is essentially on on the same level.
0: I mean, I think he really took this, like, thing that was appealing to only a cult audience in these early, like, horror films and sci-fi films, and he was able to find out how to make them universally appealing, because... Obviously, they have huge audience interest, but nobody had really made them as accessible as Spielberg did. So his credit is a lot of popularizing uh, kind of old themes and um, the tones of the old horror directors. So he, he was able to bring that into the mainstream.
1: Yeah, well, it was kind of crazy. You consider you take this kind of pulpy novel here that you got this melodrama and, you know, this with this premise of a kind of B movie, you know, uh, kind of grindhouse monster feature here and you turn it into the world's biggest film at the time it's <laughs> how do you even do that how do you even conceive and if you if you look at the film it's definitely i think that that rests on the strong characterization you have there and then really ratcheting up the spectacle of it and making it all thrilling and you know kind of we're kind of relying on those kind of more hitchcock elements
0: yeah i think it was a culmination of so many things in the right place right time right before there were all these franchise, franchises that were being built. Um, I think Jaws kind of paved the way for what a blockbuster actually looks like and uh, is kind of the first, uh, you know, great example of one.
1: Yeah, it's, it's basically the defining film of the blockbuster era, there. It's what it's kicked everything off with Star Wars kind of quickly following behind it two years later.
0: Yeah, and you can see like what's culminating within that same circle of the, you know, from post uh, new Hollywood you could see what those guys learned from each other and what they were going to do when they turned, uh, like a lot of those guys really resent Jaws, right? That's one thing I, I would like to look at is that a lot of it really ruined what new Hollywood was about and kind of auteur focused movies for the next, you know, until now the yeah. foreseeable future.
1: Yeah. I would say that it definitely shifted. Like the seventies was a kind of peak period of auteur filmmaking and Spielberg obviously being one of those there, but you know, because of, jaws in a way it kind of snowballed into you know a kind of mundane you know sameness to all the films that you know were kind of the big temples there kind of thereafter we, we lost a little bit of that
0: i mean feeling. i don't blame people like like bodanovich who thinks that jaws is just kind of like a crock of shit because it ruined the auteur spirit for him but he's a pretty negative guy anyway and someone that's an outsider like spielberg that's uh, more interested in the commerce than the the art of making films potentially that uh, might not be appreciated in those circles.
1: I'll say this Paul. Well, as much as I, I love Bogdanovich and many of the films he's made and the kind of important ones he did and all of his dedication to film preservation and history, he never made anything as good as Jaws.
0: No, he's a huge prick too. So, <laughs> <you know. laughs>
1: but but so were many of the great directors, you know, famously even like yeah. his relationship with John Ford. I love John Ford and Spielberg and Bogdanovich both don't love John Ford, but that guy was an asshole. <laughs>
0: I mean, you take the people that are learning from Ford, like Schrader and Bogdanovich and Wells, and you're not, you're not going to get the nicest guys.
1: No, yeah, of course. You know, that's, that's the people they kind of idolize and they take after a bit there. But, you know, certainly not in the same kind of ways. Uh, but Spielberg obviously didn't, didn't have that. Spielberg's though, though lately, I guess he's kind of surfaced his own kind of annoying carryovers from previous generations and ideas. You know, we've talked a bit about Spielberg's curmudgeoniness in the past.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure one day he'll make another notable film. We could go through and rank all of his. But I think Jaws, would you say, is pretty high up there? Yeah, well, if maybe we first.
1: will. Maybe we will when he finishes up this weird-looking West Side Story remake.
0: <laughs> I don't know if that's going to be like our impetus to like ranking like a great director's work.
1: No, oh, I we'll mean, it's, it's still something I think we'll we'll talk about regardless if it's you know yeah. great or not. Like I think just the com- comparison. Like I I kind of regret that we didn't. Talk about West Side Story, like the original one. We both watched it just recently. That would have been a great. I know.
0: One. I think we can both rewatch it once that once that comes out. We can make that commitment now. Go back oh, and yeah. do some West Side Story uh, podcast
1: next Christmas, like not the second one, but the next
0: one. Assuming our
1: podcast is still going.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, if we don't cancel next week. Mm-hmm. I
1: don't know. That'll be a uh, an interesting one to kind of go over and you know discuss especially in the wake of the new one there but jaws especially you know kind of going back to this it's just it's it's a film i i love to no end this is one of my all-time favorite films this is like the third or fourth or fifth of my like top 10 films we've discussed on the podcast
0: (laughs) yeah i mean jaws like you say more important than schindler's list we all think you should go watch it
1: this is, this is the, the apex of Spielberg's career, as far as I'm concerned. This is his most important, most influential, greatest achievement in all of filmmaking.
0: I wonder what I like better. I like Close Encounters a whole lot. Mm-hmm.
1: Which he made, I think, right off the back of this. And it has that yeah. even more personal element. I would say Close Encounters is probably Spielberg's most personal film. And maybe that'll be one we talk about in the future as well. Because it's got interesting ones R- Richard Dreyfuss is an underrated actor. It's yeah. a shame that his career didn't take off more. <laughs>
0: I mean, I think we could do a lot with Close Encounters. It's it's definitely like the most endearing and sentimental about uh, Spielberg's influences and seeing the, you know, kind of films that he was really pulling from and being more one of those than uh, Close Encounters doesn't feel made for the market. I guess I'd say ah, it feels like not. he, it feels like he made this one film so he could go make his really personal work. So that's I how think, I feel but... about that
1: it kind of turned out that you know jaws was such a significant and even you know i'd say it's got a lot of personal spielberginess to it as well his fingerprints are obviously all over the film it's very you know kind of you know noteworthy film, him and i think there's a lot of what i love about jaws as well as the somewhat amateur quality to it like it feels like it's handmade and that gives it this and it's you know, it's just feeling.
0: really it's really hard to shoot on the water <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, and you could tell, and I think, but they, they incorporate that and use it, the, the buoyancy of, you know, the, the boats out there and the seeing the things move in the camera angles. Again, it gives it a more authentic feel, that, that very, you know, out there feeling. It's this the strongest aspect, I think, of the film there, and it really resonates with me, and I'm so very grateful that Spielberg did it for real.
0: I mean, like, 20 years later, we figure out in the water world that it's still really impossible to shoot on the water, so it's kind of miraculous that any of it works anyway.
1: Right, like, if you think about, like, just in general, the kind of craziness they allowed in the 70s, like, both this
0: and a disaster-like <laughs> apocalypse now in the same decade. Yeah. I don't know how they let them make these movies. They wouldn't today, so we have to enjoy these.
1: Yeah, and but, you know, look at what happens. That's where creati- creativity wins through, and they use the disadvantage
0: to make masterpieces.
1: Yeah, that's they were able.
0: That's what the '70s is all about: is uh, harnessing disadvantages to create really fundamental art. Yeah,
1: I'll I'll end this with a quote from Morrison Wells, who I think kind of really sums up this idea here: is that he he always said that a director was someone who presides over accidents, and I think that that's, perfectly kind of summarizes that.
0: I think that's a perfect way to leave Jaws.